Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a bright but cool autumn day here in the capital is Robin Conway. Robin is the Managing Director at Arc Communications, a wireless telecom specialist based in Birmingham. Uh, Robin, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for joining us today. Thanks a lot, Scott. It's uh, good to be here. Pleasure welcoming you onto the airways with us as well, Robin. Um, Normally, at this early point in the show, we tend to dive straight into the subject of leadership in a broad sense and really bring that into focus. But considering that the ongoing COVID-19 situation has dominated the headlines throughout the year, I feel it's appropriate that we approach the subject matter from that angle because it's been such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life. But for you and your business, to what extent has it changed things? Well, I mean, first and foremost, we've been uh, one of the very uh, fortunate industries um, being involved in wireless communications. We've been classed as essential workers, so we're essential workers from the uh, from the very start of the pandemic when we went into uh, to lockdown. Which you know, it's we we are as I say, we are very fortunate in that respect. But it also presented a, a lot of challenges, rather than um, sort of simply heading home and uh, locking ourselves away as uh, the government instructed we had to continue to operate and work um, in what was a a very sort of challenging environment you know the procurement of uh, essential PPE for our staff to make sure that they were safe the continuation of uh, essential workers within a sort of uh, warehouse environment and ensuring that we got the correct social distancing um, and, and sort of you know PPE that now we all take for granted in the fact that we can walk into any shop and just buy a face mask, buy gloves and, and, and that type of stuff. At the very start, um, back in March, that stuff was, was, was incredibly difficult to, uh, to, to get hold of. But it was good, you know, as a, as a community, um, the wireless telecommunications um, industry sort of pulled together. So the mobile network operators, uh, BT, EE, 3UK, Vodafone and, and O2 all, all issued um, joint statements as well as through um, the uh, department's culture, media and sport. And um, we, we, we were able to communicate that we were going to continue operating. We were able to get some of those uh, essential uh, items of PPE to keep our, our staff as, as safe as we possibly could. Mm. And we were able to inform you know, our, our sub providers that we were going to be continuing and, 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 and we would, would get out there. What One of the one of the biggest things as well that uh, that, that really am, uh, impacted our um, industry specifically and the, and the work that we were carrying out at the time was the uh, the misinformation that was being spread spread about COVID nineteen and 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 five G potentially being uh, a causation of it. Um, we we were we are uh, actively and, and and we were deploying five G at the time and we and we faced some quite challenging um, sort of situations with our with our with our teams in the field as well with members of the public sort of challenging them and uh, and, and approaching them so yeah it was um we, we're fortunate that the business has sort of remained resilient and and sort of continued um relatively in line with our with our forecast 
Um, but um, that presented new challenges for, that, um, that, that we couldn't have even sort of imagined, really. And I can imagine that with the shift toward remote working, whatever may become of that in the long term, services like yours are going to become all the more important in future, aren't they? As businesses weigh up, well, are we going to be looking at a more of a wholesale shift toward working from home in the future? Will we be jettisoning our office space? These are all questions which are going to have an impact on the work that you're going to be doing. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the network dynamics and the, and the sort of the shift of population density that occurred in the initial lockdown put the networks under under extreme uh, strain. Um, but we are lucky in this country that we have such um, resilient networks and uh, we were able to optimise and add capacity and we're continuing to constantly add capacity to the, uh, to the networks through enhanced 4G services as well as, um, you know, new 5G services, which means that people can start to work more effectively from home or, or, or on the move. Um, as, as will be the sort of case in the, in, in the future. I mean, for our business um, specifically, we've taken the view that home and, and, and flexible working will be a, a long-term part of our culture. Mm. Um, and we're, we're actively encouraging people to sort of make those decisions based on their personal circumstances. You know, certainly there are some uh, members of the team who working at home just isn't practical for you know they might not have the um, they might not have the space. They might not have the the, the the facilities if they're people that are sort of still living with parents and that type of stuff. It might not be overly convenient. Um, so we will make space for those those people that that that, that need the office environment to work in. Um, but we've sort of taken a bit of a cultural shift here, and we've we've launched a project actually during the um, during the co- this this sort of COVID period for which we've called called people first and it's engaging with all of uh, all of the teams from you know the field operatives to the guys that are usually working in the office the guys that are doing the design um, and we're working with them to actually define the workplace of the future for anybody that works for ARC um, and we're finding that we're going to probably have workspaces that are more around collaboration more around learning and more around sort of informal places for people to sort of meet and work as a team and problem solve uh, rather than running the sort of nine to five um, office hours that, you know, historically we always have. And just thinking about, of course, um, what you've been doing with regards to your own employees there, of course, you've been taking sort of a very close look at the work from home situation, seeing where it's practical, seeing where it's not, because it isn't a one size fits all approach. You raise a huge point there. Um, But also with you mentioned with the misinformation out there early on, of course, PP shortages throughout the entirety of the pandemic as a whole. I'm interested to understand from a leadership point of view, just how it's been managing the well-being of the people that you work with, because that is so, so important and particularly on the mental health side of things that's been thrust very much back into the limelight by the pandemic too absolutely absolutely and um this this is sort of um before before the pandemic uh, hit one of our sort of key objectives for 2020 was to improve um the quality and sort of consistency of communication throughout the business um when the pandemic started that was ever more important you know communication is absolutely key when people are feel disconnected through proximity, it's really important to reconnect um, through communication. Um, We're very fortunate, you know, um, platforms like Microsoft Teams, like Zoom, 
um, have really sort of shown their, their value and their worth in that, whether that's through, you know, the sort of pub quizzes, which were very, very popular at the uh, at the start of the initial lockdown, to, um, you know, being able to communicate with, uh, with, with team members on a daily basis in the, uh, in, in the work environment, but it's trying to um, recreate the more informal types of communication that occur in the office setting, which is, which is probably one of the biggest challenges that we've got at the moment. But with measures easing slightly, we are working on sort of trying to create a, a, a bit, a bit of a team culture. One of the things that we're, that we're doing now is we're hosting a, a sort of hit um, fit class for, 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 uh, members of the team to, to, to come along to on, uh, on, on weekends. So it sort of creates that informal setting, but also creates that sort of social interaction, but in a, in, in, in a sort of safe setting uh, out, outside as well. So, yeah, I mean, the key, the key thing for us as, as sort of the, the, my senior leadership team um, within ARC is, is making sure that communication is sort of consistent um, making sure that nobody gets sort of forgotten and, and that we create those opportunities for the informal bits of communication where somebody can say, we've been having a bad week, we've been having a bad day, mm. um, you know, I, I'm struggling with lockdown, how can, you know, and, and, and then it's sort of equipping those people with tools as to how we can address that, you know, if somebody comes and says, look, I'm, I'm really struggling with lockdown, well, you know, it's not within our gift to take lockdown away, although I'm sure, you know, everybody wishes that they could. Mm. But it's, it, it, it's about remaining, um, you know, positive to some extent, but you can't dismiss the, the feelings that people are having. Um, and doing our best to sort of support them and whether that's a socially distanced walk um, in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a sort of um, in an outdoor setting or whether that's just spending a little bit more time with them and, and you know, delivering that sort of empathy that people need during this time, because, you know, ev- everyone is struggling with this, but it's, um, it, it's not moving quickly. So we've, we've got to, um, do our best to be, to be, to be resilient, to be positive and to, uh, and, 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 and to do the important things of, you know, the work that we're doing and, and really keeping that insight that, um, you know, with, with, situations could be could, could be a lot worse you know when you look around the uh, the, the globe as to uh, how other countries are, are dealing or suffering with the uh, with the pandemic you know none of us are alone in this and um, yeah they were pulling, pulling together in a socially distanced manner is uh, is quite a challenge but it's just what we've got to do it is a challenge, isn't it? And especially since we can't always replicate the face-to-face contact and that isn't always possible um, in the way that we've always known it. And I think we did take that for granted quite a bit before. And talking about sharing some positivity, uh, Robin, I imagine there are so many people out there at the moment that are looking at what COVID-19 has done to the economy, what it's done to their employment prospects, particularly for those among the younger generation, and are looking downhearted at the, at the whole situation. As somebody who is a successful businessman yourself, what message would you have to those younger groups of people to really get them to pick their heads up, recognise the opportunities out there and start on the road to success at this time? Well, I mean, you know, first and foremost, that um, things think things will always get better. Um, you know, the, the, the fact is, yes, the economy is going to suffer. Yes, there will be um, job losses as a result of this uh, this COVID pandemic. But you've got to look at the, uh, the, the the positive elements of this. You know whether that's the fact that through the um, lack of sort of free travel that we have had, 
it's almost forced communities to come together and become more resilient as with you know more resilient more familiar with the, with your neighbors the people within your, your you know your your physical community um you know that that's potentially a, a really positive outcome of this um of, of, of this pandemic you know we've cut down on a non-essential travel quite considerably so the environmental impact and the um the the, the fact that it is possible to not travel as much and not to emit as much in the way of uh, greenhouse gases is, is is a really positive thing to to draw from that. And one of the things I think that that really excites me is the um, sort of stance that the government has taken in relation to the green economy, really um, helping to take us out of this um, this 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 economic slowdown that uh, that is inevitably going to occur. And that's a really exciting thing, you know, not just for for, for, for young people, but you know, humanity in uh, in general. We've got an opportunity now to uh, sort of reverse some of the effects of uh, of, of the, uh, the release of carbon that we've uh, mm. sort of uh, sponsored over the last however many uh, hundreds of years. And um, that that the, there are new industries that are going to come of this. We've got a tech era that is um, upon us, you know, my very own industry with the deployment of 5G, what is that is going to make possible the capabilities that we're going to have through uh, a, a real 5G infrastructure for the for the UK, a connected Britain, taking people out of sort of one meg upload and download or less and, and, and everyone having sort of full fibre to the home. That's going to create new economies. It's going to create new social platforms. It's going to create New ways that we exist that we couldn't have even even think of. You know, this is a it, it's a tech revolution that we have now got on the horizon. Um, you know, that industrial revolution of a hundred years ago or, or, or so, and now we're pressing into this technology revolution where we can think of autonomous vehicles. Um, you know, the the ability to sort of communicate and and function um, in it. You know, across continents through through technology. It's just going to be um, absolutely incredible, and uh, I, I think it's it, it is a very exciting time. The, the you know the uh, the days may feel fairly dark now, and certainly with with, with winter setting in, it's it, it's very real. But you know, spring will come, and uh, and hopefully we'll have a, a po- more positive outlook in in twenty twenty one. But if it's not, then it'll soon certainly come because uh, we're a resilient species. And uh, I'm sure that we'll, uh, we'll we'll get through this and uh, and and look back upon it in history, and um, you know, hopefully, we can learn from it. Certainly so. We all need a dose of that positivity for sure, because it is so, so infectious during a time like this. And if we think about the uh, the next 12 months and what that is likely to bring, I know we certainly don't have a crystal ball at the moment, Robin, but for yourselves in an ideal world, where would you want art communications to be this time in a year? And what where, what direction can you also see the industry heading in during this time? I mean, the industry in general is a, is a, is a very, very exciting place to be at the moment, you know, with... Um, 5G technology being um, a, a real sort of um, figurehead of the economic recovery um, that, that we're going to need, um, with um, it being such a such a new technology, new um, concept to come into the market um, consistently. And for Arc, what does that mean? What what do we want? We we are very much setting our course to become the market leader in um, you know wireless services in the UK. That is that is my ambition for the business. Um, we were uh, acquired actually during the pandemic, which uh, is is a 
is an experience. I, I, I can tell you, you know, doing the uh, the sort of due diligence of selling a business um, dur- during the uh, the pandemic wasn't without its challenges either. But but again, we did it. Another sort of uh, shining success of the technology that we ha- have at our hands our fingertips these days um, and part of our group strategy within the sort of the KN Cersei group is to be the market leader in uh, in telecom telecommunication services in general general we are the wireless business and and, and, and that is very much our ambition um, and we are going to be recruiting we are going to be growing we're going to be supporting our customers so from an operator level BTs the three UKs the Telefonicas and Vodafones of the uh, of the world will very much be supporting them in a in a, in a service capacity and um, looking forward to growing the business through um, through through the period we've managed to grow during 2020. We'll be continuing that growth in 2021, and um, I think also just to sort of you know pay reference to to that and um, the the incredible work that all of our team has done. We've we've onboarded a lot of people during. Uh, during the pandemic, um, that has been not without its challenges, but I think relatively successful. And uh, we'll we'll continue to do that. We'll continue to grow the team and 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 really try and instill that culture of a business that's working together to to achieve great things in a in a really exciting marketplace. Sounds like it is very much exciting times going forward from here, even among all the uncertainty, Robin. And I certainly wish you all the luck in the world um, in uh, making all of that possible. And I actually think just considering how enlightening it's been hearing about your thoughts on the industry today, it would be wonderful just to catch up at some point in the next year and see how things are starting to pan out. And we can just reassess at that point what sort of shape the country's in at that time as well. No, absolutely, Scott. I'd uh, certainly look forward to that. I'd thoroughly relish that opportunity as well, Robin, because it's been such a pleasure welcoming you onto the programme today. I've thoroughly enjoyed your company on the airwaves with us. And uh, most importantly as well, until we do hopefully get to speak again, please do take care and stay safe with everything that is still going on, because we're certainly not quite out of the woods with this yet, but let's just keep our fingers crossed that we won't be stuck in the rut for too much longer. No, and uh, you stay safe too, Scott. Thanks a lot. I'd also like to reiterate that message to all of our listeners tuning in today as well. Please stay well and look after yourselves as well as being considerate of others because it does make such a difference in saving lives at this time. It was a pleasure for me to welcome Robin Conway, Managing Director at ARC Communications, onto today's programme. Uh, next up on the show, we'll be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. During his illustrious professional career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City, among other clubs but of course he remains most well known for that famous treble in England's 4-2 triumph over West Germany back at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago. That hat-trick not only won England the World Cup its only world title but also he made Sir Jeff the only man to this day to have netted a hat-trick within a World Cup final. Um, Sir Jeff will be coming on to the programme to discuss the leadership highlights of his career as well as leaving a message of thanks to our wonderful NHS who've been doing all they can during this most trying time all of that is coming up next and now ladies and gentlemen without further ado we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in sir jeff hurst who joins us on the program today um sir jeff good morning good morning how are you very good thank you it certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it isn't it it is the weather's pretty good at the moment i hope it might, might last 
Absolutely. Oh, thunderstorm, it's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, I get that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and goodness me, it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player. Uh, tremendous goal scorer and if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved it would be someone like Harry who's a fantastic professional with with Spurs in England so absolutely and I want England to do well I mean I want England to be successful I'm an England supporter I'm a football supporter and I just I really want the country to do well in in anything in in all sports and particularly in my sport so I wanted to bury it and I'd be absolutely I would be as delighted as anybody in the, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my, uh, my achievement. It's about the team being successful. Whether I got two or three in one sense is... is uh, I wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand we all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... um, I I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking um, at that moment. Obviously, a crucial moment in in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. As the ball came to me initially, I was actually with my back to goal. I was actually looking at the referee. Uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth but waving play on with both arms indicating quite clearly of course that the game was nearly finished so when I got to the edge of the box I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished I'm thinking if the game's nearly finished I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left but I'm thinking if it goes beyond the, beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, Hans Tilkowski the German keeper by that time surely the game has got to be over but as I always jokingly say, uh, I miss hit it and, it and it flew in. But I was thinking about wasting time, not so much about, uh, but certainly what I was going to do, which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours. And it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Yes, I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense, because the game is unfinished. But that, that, that philosophy is right. You're just going to uh, 
there's an element of, of, of risks uh, of making this, but it's going to be a control on that risk, not not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life. An element of maybe doing something that you're not too sure about, but sometimes in life you've got, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service. And we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts. And we're hanging out thank you banners, displaying drawings of rainbows, very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh, absolutely. Particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing. And I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what, what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, but there's enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital in uh, important in a sense to have a, a health service that works efficiently and to see individually the, the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on. And, and also, into what was also for me fantastic, all these people from different, different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same you you union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. Uh, very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identify then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS, fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about going to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my at my best during those those, those years. 
um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, uh, clever enough, uh, technically good enough to, to be a rap, to be uh, a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp, who's been around a long time, would still say he's, he's the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years Harry's been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a at national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the, and teach and coach the players to be prepared to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill. Making sure those players were disciplined um, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined, moving from one to the other, uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was, I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a, you've got a, a coach, who's a team coach, who's a teacher effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager, who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, the wrong reason of passing a coach person to Al, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters, and from all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over, different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for, uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was, was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can say I can't be as, I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic uh, uh, people in my life, in my, in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think leadership is important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn if you're central enough to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management so you can learn as much from people making mistakes you can learn also from making your own mistakes mm. you can do something in the past that think well like, that was a really stupid thing to do and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again and it, it is important in all of life you learn from your mistakes people will make mistakes uh, young people will make mistakes but it's learning it's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. 
Mm. completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during your Absolutely. conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier, even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> So many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We, in in those uh, medieval days, you there were you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. You um, in our road in Greenways, it was called in Chelmsford. We that three or four lads <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac, not a big long road um, with a round with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway. A because it was a a cul-de-sac and B because there weren't as many cars no we as many cars in those days so uh, we played acro- across the str- across the road um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back the goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted that was the goal and it's always a three of us play football but amongst those houses where we lived and played there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, fl- flying, you know, and gl- making balsa wood gliders. And uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, uh, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court, and uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street, and uh, we were actually, but that that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We, we, I was born in Ashton under Lyne. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably, I was the eldest of three, when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was uh, had a big influence, going back to that third gold in the World Cup, in many years in the back garden and when we moved on to a, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot and so I at that time and even today it's, it's uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed and I was maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton even Jack Charlton his brother didn't know which was his best foot he, he was fantastic but I was pretty pretty um, um Two-footed, and a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to 
two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leading age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them. And uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leading age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or uh, you know writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. The problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well, and I was messing about, as I, I kindly put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then, or centre-half at school. Um, he said, I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game, and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game, the sort of went messing about between the two. I had uh, one first-class game for Essex, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got naught and, and naught not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game, funny. I filmed a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game um, v Lancashire up. Up in their territory, but that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done with some advice maybe earlier to say make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till what September, whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games for those two or three years. Extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it. And from a standing start, I think my first season around, I think September, October, I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool. And I think I played about 23, 24 games, no, 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals, like one in two from a standing start for a, mm. a midfield player. So um, quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 60, 62, 63 season, the three years before the World Cup. And when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously it's showing a lot of videos of Banksy, programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to 
smother balls up and not just setting balls at it. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you could possibly wish to meet. But he was a joker. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd you, have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky. And very lucky, of course, to have that kind of and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banksy is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player, in, but in the squad, and Ray Wilson, our left back, I'd always argue, was a world-class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup from world-class players. And Banksy was up there, w- w- not with the best, the best for me. And another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them described trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course, over the years, hopefully that, that has come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was, I was initially first fairly surprised I think it's, and certainly my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was uh, which is, I can see in myself. I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Greaves and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. My discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Waddington saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across. The, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slight bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player. But I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mould, mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times, uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months. And I think he, it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. 
did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America. Uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham that we was a great time at the club, and I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the uh, the the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi final, so it was a, a marvelous time for for that particular club. And very close, we actually I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on on a goal over two over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I, was, I wasn't at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge then. I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year, but I've made very little contribution to that success that I've had. So, um, yes, it, the American experience was just fantastic. I never saw it long-term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters. And my wife, thank you, was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was, that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a, just a... I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about, I think, a month, I think it was. And I enjoyed the experience. And I earned a few quid, and I think it paid for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. New kitchen. <laughs> so it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend, as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's... I think the that kind of... Uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe uh, maybe longer maybe in longer not some sort of immediately after you finish playing but in the long term when um, uh, and I always joke with people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend and, and I always joke and say you, you only start being called a legend when you're over 70 and I think the, the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not not certainly, um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my, during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody necessarily looks at me. When I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has, has natural characteristics. You can learn about management or management courses, but there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. 
but one of the things I learned about brands is I take it into my my business life and even my uh, talking to my family life if we're involved in business is when you're managing people you manage them as a group anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss you move them out and I think that's the simple one of the most simple uh, lessons I learned during the Alf Ramsey period even some of the great players I felt should have been in the squad possibly at, at the time without mentioning names um, when you hear stories about this player not you know, completely complying with everything and they're left out or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of, of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff, thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise, thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.